Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our presentation of the direct examination of FBI electronics engineer Dwight Falkowski. And, we began our review of Philip Barber's cross-examination of Mr. Falkowski for the defense as day 11 of the trial came to a close. In this installment, we begin our review of day 12 with the conclusion of Mr. Falkowski's testimony and with a recap of part of the testimony of Chris Wilson, a longtime friend of Alex Murdoch and witness to the defendant's financial crimes. That's all coming up right after the break. 2023, day 12 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, Judge Clifton Newman adjourned day 11 as FBI electronics engineer Dwight Falkowski was taking a break from his testimony in order to review a document presented to him by defense attorney Philip Barber. The document was a data extraction report from the vehicle log of Alex Murdoch's Chevy Suburban. And as we begin today, Philip Barber continues his cross-examination by asking Mr. Falkowski about the nature of data encryption on the vehicle's infotainment system. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Um, and this, this will be very um, brief, I believe, but just very briefly. Yesterday we covered that it was difficult to download the information from the vehicle because it was encrypted by the manufacturer, correct? Yes, the encryption was done by the manufacturer. And you essentially had to reverse engineer the device using a test vehicle. That's correct. Um, and it looks like you got a lot of good data out of it, but there's some of it that isn't quite clear. Like we said that we didn't exactly know what necessarily would trigger something like a system startup. Correct. But some of the other ones would be pretty obvious, like engine on obviously means somebody cranked the car. Yeah, the engine was turned right. on at that point. Okay. I'm not going to uh, go through that spreadsheet uh, again. I just wanted to, to clarify that. And how long did this process take you, this reverse engineering process? Our whole analysis took just about one year. It's a long time. To... It's a hard effort. Will you be able to reuse this, this work on other... 2021 Chevy Suburban? Some of the tools we developed will be reusable. I asked before, and I guess it's no one reached out to the manufacturer for assistance in this process? Our group did not. Do you, do you know why? I mean, I think yesterday you said in the past there wasn't, you know, they weren't very helpful, but it seems like the worst they could do is say no. Um, do you know why it was decided to not reach out? For our unit, I believe uh, that our attempt is to get the data ourselves without outside assistance. In many cases, um, we end up finding data that even the manufacturer doesn't know is there. Now I want to turn to what um, 
I think a technical issue was, was resolved, and I'm going to show you a printout that has been marked as uh, Defendant's Exhibit 90, and I believe you've had a chance to review this. Philip Barber hands a document to Mr. Falkowski, who references it as he answers the next few questions. Yes, sir, I've re reviewed this material. And, and you recognize it? Yes, this is from our results. And, and what is this? This is a, uh, a list of events that were uh, recorded from the vehicle. Uh, there was a category we called events that just listed times that something interacted or something occurred with the vehicle. And on this printout, the only event, um, I guess, listed here are uh, iPhones or something called Richard's iPhone earlier on connecting to the vehicle. Is that correct? Uh, I see from the first page here, yeah, there's one that's labeled iPhone with a Bluetooth MAC address, and this, it's a device connection timestamp. Um, if you, if I, you've seen this before in, a, in your review, and you can look at it now, um, do you see any, is this pretty much all device connections, phones connecting to the Bluetooth in the car? Yes, I see other Bluetooth devices connecting as well. And is it, just to be clear on this, the only uh, phone connecting in the month of June, at least, is one named iPhone that has a phone number ending in 1227, is that correct? The phone number itself is not listed on this page. Uh, it is the Bluetooth MAC address that is identified by. Is the um, under connected devices right above the word events where it says iPhone and there's a MAC address, is the IMSI number that's listed there, 803-942-1227, is that the phone number? That's for the iPhone, correct. Okay. And that's the phone that was connecting in June? That appears to be the only one that connected in June. Yes. Is this something that you also had to reverse engineer out of the vehicle? Yes, all of the data we found was unknown prior to taking a look at the test vehicle. And the event that we're looking at here, device connection, that is the phone connecting to the, the Bluetooth in the vehicle so that you know you could use it for whatever goes up the Bluetooth connection, whether it's phone calls or, or apps or whatever, depending on. It indicates a, a connection event from the Bluetooth to the vehicle's uh, infotainment system. And up here in connected devices, does this indicate that this iPhone was, I guess, paired to the vehicle? That's correct. Okay. And so, in your experience, if your phone is paired to your vehicle and Bluetooth is on and, and it connects, that typically happens automatically when you get in and turn it on, your phone is with you? Yeah, if there's a device that is registered, uh, paired to the vehicle, it will automatically uh, connect location data recovered from the OnStar module. And do you recall, was there any location data 2021? There was no location data recovered on June 7th. And in fact, there wasn't any for June 6th or June 8th either. Exactly. I'd have to verify those dates, but in this essence, on the day of interest in June 7th, there was uh, no, no location data. After Dwight Falkowski steps down from the witness stand, the prosecution calls Chris Wilson, a fellow lawyer and longtime friend of Alex Murdoch. Because we covered Mr. Wilson's testimony in episodes 56 and 57 of this season as part of the in-camera hearing regarding the admissibility of the defendant's financial crimes, we will abridge our report on the prosecution's direct examination of him. Instead, we will offer a brief summary of the main points of his testimony. Chris Wilson is in his mid-50s. He sports short graying hair and wears a dark gray suit, a sky blue shirt, and a pink patterned tie. Creighton Waters handles the questioning for the state. Waters first asks Wilson about his relationship with Alex Murdoch. 
The witness and the defendant have been close friends and professional associates since law school. Wilson and Murdoch collaborated on various cases over the years, often splitting fees evenly between their firms. Wilson then describes the events surrounding the disbursement of fees from a case involving Andrew Ferris. Alex Murdoch and Chris Wilson had represented Ferris following a 2015 vehicle crash involving Ferris and a Mack truck. In February of 2021, Ferris was awarded a $5.5 million settlement with $792,000 in attorney fees due to Wilson and Murdoch's PMPED law firm. Alex requested his share to be structured into annuities for tax deferral purposes. Wilson, trusting the defendant due to their long-standing friendship, followed Murdoch's instructions to issue checks from the case directly to him. Over the summer of 2021, Murdoch's firm, PMPED, inquired with Wilson about the whereabouts of those fees. Wilson testifies that he then had multiple conversations with Alex regarding the fees, prompting Wilson to cover a shortfall of $192,000 from his own funds based on Alex's assurance that he would repay it. Skeptical of the defendant's verbal assurances, Wilson had Murdoch sign a document promising to repay the funds. Wilson states that he was worried that, in the aftermath of Paul and Maggie's deaths, Murdoch might commit suicide. At this point, Creighton Waters asks Judge Clifton Newman to excuse the jury so that they can discuss with the judge the admissibility of Mr. Wilson's testimony about his final interactions with Alex Murdoch. Judge Newman agrees to allow the jury to go on a break. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. When the jury has left the courtroom, Judge Newman hears arguments from the parties about the admissibility of Mr. Wilson's testimony about learning that Alex Murdoch had been shot in the head and airlifted to a hospital. Creighton Waters argues to Judge Newman for the state. No, just uh, out of a abundance of uh, caution uh, before we got to uh, this portion of the uh, witness's testimony, uh, as your Honor is aware from the in-camera proceedings, uh, there is... Uh, he has a confrontation with the defendant, uh, and the defendant tells him some things uh, that uh, um, he, uh, uh, the, the witness here, has a confrontation with the defendant um, at his mother's porch after receiving word about what the law firm had found. Uh, from the in-camera testimony, the uh, witness has testified that the defendant, you know, admits the financial misdeeds, says he had a, a drug issue, uh, I think going to rehab, and some things like that, and that is, I believe, on the early afternoon of September 4th. And then, uh, not long after that, he hears that the uh, defendant was shot on the side of the road. And so, we've had some discussions about the drug issue. So, before listening to that testimony, I just wanted, I alerted the defense and wanted to make sure that, uh, that we had set our ground rules on that. And then, of course, the side of the road uh, issue, which we've talked about earlier. Um, is what ground rules did you set? Uh, well, um, Your Honor sets the ground rules, and that's, that's uh, 
you take a break doing asking, questioning the witness to have a conference with counsel? Well, I, I am, I am uh, it, seeking to admit that evidence, not only of what the defendant said about his drug use, but also to sp submit that not long after that he heard about the side of the road incident. And uh, I, you know, out of abundance of caution, uh, raised that issue, and I believe the defense was going to object. Um, you know, trying to give them the, the opportunity to do that uh, in an in-camera setting. All right. Which, Your Honor, for both of those, I think uh, um, they are admissible. First of all, again, we're not offering any drug use, uh, and we've had some discussion about that yesterday. We're not offering any drug use uh, for the purposes of um, what's improper under 404. Uh, in this particular instance, the uh, defendant himself identifies that uh, as a reason for these alleged uh, misdeeds. So not only is it uh, not 404, it's, it's just part of the rest geste of his statement, uh, um, which is part of what's been admitted. Uh, it was admitted yesterday, so we're beyond that issue as far as the court is concerned. All right. And then as far as the side of the road. Of which are, have not been disclosed, but the, the email from Mr. Murdoch doing rehab was it published by the uh, by the defense? Yes, sir. Um, and then secondly, uh, along with the, uh, the side of the road, again, at this point in time, just going to be admitted that he heard about what had happened to uh, the defendant. Um, there are other uh, are other circumstances that uh, that we talked about earlier um, that you know we would address at a later time uh, about the side of the road, which we believe is is admissible um, and admissible under 404. Um, we could have, I don't know that we need to have an in-camera proceeding at, at this point in, in detail about that, but I just, because all he's going to say is he heard that that happened. Um, and, uh, but I just wanted to, again, and out of a bunch of caution, uh, we've gone this far. I just wanted to be, uh, you know, before I listened to anything along those lines, just wanted to alert the defense and give them a chance to object. All right. Mr. Griffin. Jim Griffin rises to respond for the defense. Yeah, we do. We do object, Your Honor. Uh, first, he's not the proper witness to be testifying about what happened on the side of the road. He he just hears it secondhand, so any information he has is just hearsay. In the in-camera hearing, he also provided his opinion that uh, he well, it must have tried to commit suicide, and that's improper. So first, it's hearsay, but but more importantly, Your Honor, it is a bridge too far under the narrow exception that you've offered. That, that they're offering this evidence of financial crimes, that he, that, that it's a motive for this alleged murder that he committed. And so the fact that whether it was an assisted suicide or they want to go further and say it's part of the same scheme and that it's a sympathy ploy, which the court hasn't ruled upon, and, and we don't think it is, meets the standard there, and it, you know, violates Rule 403. So for all those reasons, we object. Um, to it coming into evidence. Judge Clifton Newman asks Prosecutor Waters what Chris Wilson's testimony would be regarding his confrontation with the defendant and the nature of his knowledge of the later roadside shooting. Do you want to proffer what Mr. Wilson, Attorney Wilson is going to say about it? I believe uh, during his prior testimony uh, in the in-camera hearing, and, and I certainly can do that, uh, he testified. prior testimony? Yes, sir. And, and, uh, Which did not involve anything about a roadside shooting. Well, and, and so I'll go ahead and proffer, Your Honor. Yes. Right. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Wilson, kind of jumping ahead, 
you had a um, confrontation with the defendant on September 4th when you drove to Hampton County to have a meeting with him on the porch of Alameda. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, without getting into all that detail, after that conversation, uh, he, he made some admissions to you at that time. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And just very quickly tell the court what he said. Um, he admitted or said that he had had a drug problem for 20 plus years and um, that he was going to rehab. And then he said he had been, he admitted he had been stealing money. Okay. Did he say anything about the 192 with you? Did he have a phrase he used for that? Uh, yes, sir. What did he say? Judge Clifton Newman interjects. You don't have to proffer this portion. You're indicating you're trying to get in, go beyond this into something else. What time did this, uh, yes, sir, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, what time did this um, conversation take place, roughly? Mid-late morning, just before lunch. All right. And that's on September 4th? Saturday, September 4th, yes, sir. After that confrontation, did you leave? I did. And where did you go? I went through Hardy's in Hampton, grabbed a bite of lunch at the drive-thru, and then drove back towards Columbia. Um, did you hear about anything related to the defendant within a couple hours? I did. I got a phone call from Lee Cope. Might have been Randy, but I think it was Lee Cope that called me and said Alec had been shot in the head and was being helicoptered. I thought he said to Savannah Hospital. I know he said to the hospital in a helicopter. That's as far as this witness would go. And I sustained the objection as to this portion of the testimony. I agree with the defense's hearsay, and, uh, and, if it's, and he's not the appropriate witness to testify on this issue. With Judge Newman ruling that Chris Wilson's knowledge of the roadside shooting of Murdoch will not be admitted, the court takes a 10-minute recess. After the recess, Prosecutor Waters elicits testimony from Chris Wilson that soon after his September 4th encounter with the defendant, he was informed by a member of the PMPED firm that Alex Murdoch was stealing money from his firm and from his clients. Wilson further testifies that he confronted Murdoch with the accusations and the defendant confessed to stealing client money, attributing his behavior to drug addiction. After Prosecutor Waters concludes his direct examination of Mr. Wilson, defense attorney Jim Griffin rises to begin his cross-examination of the witness. Good morning, Mr. Wilson. One thing you said uh, in answering Mr. Waters' questions on uh, when you got to Moselle late night on the 7th or early morning, on the 8th, he, he asked you something about, talked to Alec about the fee issue, and your response was, I did not know there was an issue with the fee. Is that correct? That's correct. And you did not know that there was any issue with the fee on June 7th, 2021, correct? No, sir. The only conversation you had with anyone about the fee on before June 7th, 2021, from the law firm was with Lee Cope, correct? Yes, sir. And he just asked you something about, do you still have money from the Ferris case in your trust account? He asked me if all the money had been dispersed from those cases. And you told him it had not. And you told him truthfully it had not, correct? Yes, sir. We were holding money back from medical liens, cost, a number of different things. And, and you never had any follow-up questions by Mr. Cope um, before June 7th, right? No, sir. You did have a conversation with Alec, um, and, and he gave you... Some explanation, I forgot. What, what was the explanation he gave you? Um, after I got, after my paralegal, Vicki, forwarded me that email that she had received from their firm saying that there was an issue with the cost, I called Alec and, and said, hey, look, I'm 
got this email that says there's a problem with cost and you think you're owed more cost, um, no mention of fees. And um, if you're owed more cost, just let me know what they are and we'll get it worked out. We were holding money um, to deal with some things and I didn't think the client would have any problem making sure all our costs got paid uh, before the final amount of money was dispersed to the client. I said, hey, if there's a problem with cost, let me know. And he said, no, it's good. I said, hey, this is the case I dispersed directly to you on the fees. Is everything all right? He said, yeah, it's fine. The firm knows about it. I just got to make sure they know it's on the books already. So he wasn't frantic, panic. There was no panic in his voice about conversation about the fee you had? Nothing that I heard or saw, right. sir. Um, so as far as you knew, as of June 7th, there's no issue with the fee, right? I didn't know about any issue with fees prior to June the 7th or even after that. And no one was demanding from you the fairest fee money, the PMPED portion of the fairest fee money no, sir. before June 7th. No, sir. I had not received any direct contact or request for payment of fees. My, my paralegal had already advised his paralegal that the fees had already been paid. Now you, you said a number of times on, uh, on, on your, in your testimony that, that in June and July you were worried that Alec may kill himself. We were worried that, I mean, he was distraught. He's destroyed and upset all the time and not eating, not sleeping, sometimes not feeling, not seeming like he was just focused in and even there. And not just me. I mean, it's law partners, his family. I talked to his brothers. I talked to his, I talked to his partner several times throughout the month of June and July just about him and what we were worried about may happen or what he may do. And the reason he was distraught over the death of Maggie and Paul, right? Yeah, yes. I mean, and, and at no point in time, when you're thinking, I'm afraid he might hurt himself, you weren't thinking he had any involvement in June, July, during this period of time with the murders of Maggie and Paul. Yes, sir. And that he was, your thoughts were with him because he was a, a grieving husband and father. Yes, yeah, so my thoughts were with him and his whole family and, and you know, especially him and Buster. And you reached out to him as much as you could. Yes, sir. Now, there, there did come a time when you were a little worried about your $192,000 and you asked him to sign this handwritten promissory note. Yes, sir. You testified about that. And you had a conversation about how, how he's going to get you paid, right? Yes, sir. And, and in that conversation? Well, that conversation about how he was going to get me paid, I think, was prior to that. I don't think we talked about how I was going to get paid when he signed the 192000 I just simply knew enough to know or felt like I knew enough of probate law and law that if something happened to him, whether he did it to himself or something else happened to him, and I couldn't make a claim against his estate without that piece of paper. So I don't think we talked about payment or how he might get me paid that day. He had mentioned previously that he was trying to deal with Maggie's estate, he was trying to deal with his father's estate, and he had some property he thought was going to sell. But he was telling you that he did not have the money at the time. Yes, sir. When you had, And the conversation was before... The day of the promissory note, which I think is mid-August or something. August 17th, I think it was. And that, that he mentioned that um, Maggie's estate was tied up. His dad had died. you remember when his dad died? Very vividly, yes, sir. Very much. And it was Thursday, June the 10th. June the 10th. It's like three days after Maggie and Paul were murdered, right? Yes, sir. And that wasn't unexpected, was it? His dad had been seriously ill. No, sir. I went by to see Mr. Randolph one of those days after June the 7th, but before June the 10th, my wife and I had gone down to see uh, Buster and Alec, or she had come down while I was already there, and we rode over to Almeida to see, mostly to see Randolph, but to see Libby too. And then I guess he died within a day or so of you visiting with him. So I think it was the next day. But Alec thought he was going to get some money from his, from his dad's estate 
that maybe didn't go through probate that would enable him to quickly pay you back? That's what he said. Yes, sir. I don't think he said anything about it going directly through. He just said, you know, I, I've got some money that will be coming to me from my father's estate also. And, um, you know, the difference between life insurance, beneficiaries of life insurance policies, the benefits do not go through the estate, do not get tied up in the estate? Just enough to be dangerous probably, but yes, sir. Well, the, the point is he never said to you, oh, I have this million-dollar policy on Maggie's life, I have a $5 million policy on Maggie's life, or any life insurance that he was expecting to come into as a result of Maggie's death, right? No, sir, not at all. And after Maggie died and Paul died, he wasn't out spending lavishly with newfound money, was he? No, sir, not that I saw. In fact, he didn't even go to Moselle to stay a single night after Maggie and Paul were murdered. You know that? I don't know that myself directly, but every time I spoke to him, he was either staying with his brothers or staying with his in-laws. I don't think he ever went back to Moselle. Now, you've known Alec for 1985, 86, however long that is. That's 37 years, I guess, if my math's right. You're in your math better than mine. 38, something right. like that. Um, and, he, and he said to you that he had had an opioid addiction for over 20 years? I don't remember exactly the number of years, but I mean, I believe it was, he said, I've been addicted to opioids for about 20 years or more than 20 years. Well, let's just, let's just say the last five years. Yes, over the last five years, you've known him. If he was addicted to opioids, did you notice any change in his behavior? Not a, not a thing, not at all. And you were around him in business capacity? Yes, sir. Professional? You were sending him cases? Yes, sir. Um, he was acting like the normal Alec that you've known since college? Since law school. Since law school? Yes, sir. And nothing about his demeanor set red flags off to you as to, uh, man, he must be on something today. No, sir. I mean, I didn't see pill bottles when we would travel together for depositions or things like that. He didn't seem to be out of it. He seemed to be capable of handling the work that we were hand that we were doing. You know, when we would socialize together, didn't see anything that indicated that he was addicted or had a drug problem or was using drugs. And if he was on addicted to drugs for the last five or ten years, and he was, from your observation, was a loving husband and father. Yes, sir. And you didn't observe him engaging any erratic behavior around his wife and kids? No, sir. Do you know anything about the, from your medical, not your, from your legal career handling personal injury cases, do you know, you learn information about building up tolerances to painkillers, patients and clients of yours who have built up tolerances? Not really enough to talk about it much, testify for sure. Sure. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we continue our review of the cross-examination of Chris Wilson. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.